of the Lord really coming down on this place. Chapter 17 of Acts, we're going to go back to the Apostle Paul. As you know, prior to Easter season, we left him in Philippi. He had just been jailed, he and Silas, and they were, uh, had been scourged, flogged, and thrown into jail, and they were singing hymns and praying at midnight, and the angel of the Lord released him. The Philippian jailer uh, asked him, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And your house also, your household has that same opportunity. So when we leave him, uh, Paul and Sully out of prison. They were escorted by the city officials. And uh, he decided to go into Lydia's house, met there with the brethren and the sisters and uh, those who had come to know the Lord. And then the Bible says, then they left. So now we're going to pick him up in chapter 17. Turning the world right side up is the name of this message. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, excuse me, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So let's pick it up there. As Paul and Silas are leaving Philippi, the Spirit of God is driving them west, over toward Greece and toward Macedonia. Paul and Silas left Philippi and followed the Roman road called the Ignatian Way. Now, this road was constructed in the 2nd century B.C., and it was a route from east to west that united uh, the two regions uh, with Rome, ultimately. So Philippi to Amphipolis is 33 miles. Amphipolis to Apollonia is 30 miles. Apollonia to Thessalonica is some 37 miles. So even though Luke says Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica, well, that was a 100-mile trek. It took them at least three days, you can imagine. And so as they are there in Thessalonica, the Bible tells us that they were there on three Sabbath days. They taught there in the synagogue. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to the two cities of Amphipolis or Apollonia. We don't know what he did there, if anything, because nothing's mentioned. Perhaps nothing's mentioned because there were no synagogues, as there was none in Philippi. And perhaps it was because maybe they weren't as significant a town or the Spirit of God just didn't encourage them to stay and, and minister. But for whatever reason, they came to Thessalonica. Now, I've been to Thessalonica. What a great seaport area. Uh, it was the capital of Macedonia. Uh, the brother-in-law of Alexander the Great actually founded it there. And it was a major trade center, second only to Corinth, 
with a, an excellent harbor as well. So it was not only trade route for inland area of that time, but also for ships to come in and port there. So it was a very strategic city. It was estimated that some 200,000 people resided in Thessalonica at that particular time. The Ignatian Way went right through the heart of the town on its way in and on its way out. And so as they were there ministering, we know that they were there for at least three weeks because Paul did what Paul always does. He went to the synagogues first. And there must have been a very large, very thriving synagogue there in Thessalonica. And he, as a very well he taught there for three Sabbath days. Well, we know that he was probably there longer than that. We know that he, we don't know what all he did there. We do know that he was a tent maker by trade. And when we read the letter to 1 Thessalonians, it indicated that he was engaged in his business of tent making while he was there in Thessalonica ministering to them. And we know that he was probably there longer than three weeks. What did he do after the synagogue? We think they probably uh, asked him not to teach anymore in the synagogue because they were having a hard time handling uh, the sharp uh, intellectual style that Paul presented to them. Uh, he could, uh, without any, had no further questions to ask him. And he was out in the marketplace. We know that he was out in Thessalonica. We know that he was ministering among those who had trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, I want you to see three things. When he came, the Bible said he came to the Jewish synagogue. We know that he's, he has said on several occasions that the gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Greek or then to the Gentile. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue. Now, Notice that there were three things, and three elements in what Paul proclaimed. In his proclamation, in verse 2 and 3, he reasoned. The Greek word from which we get the word dialogue. It was not a monologue. He wasn't preaching to them. He wasn't just teaching to them, but he was engaging them to dialogue with him. And so as he began to talk to them about Jesus and the Scriptures and explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And he would spend time in talking about the prophets from Isaiah 53, I'm sure, and, and Psalms 22 as he began to talk about the suffering servant. But he reasoned with him and he dialogued. When you're engaging somebody for the Lord, don't just talk to them. Talk with them. Find that common point of interest in whatever it might be and dialogue. That means two people conversing, not one person just carrying the entire brunt of the conversation. Listen as much as you speak. Dialogue is what we are interested in. And secondly, the Bible says not only did he dialogue with them, but he explained to them. He reasoned and he explained. That word explained in the Greek means literally to open. It's, it's the same word that's used to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus after the crucifixion. And where Jesus joined with them, he opened their eyes to who he really was, to the truth of the Scripture. 
And so it's this opening of the Scriptures to explain their meaning. And then he proved, he demonstrated that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. He proved by presenting the evidence. The evidence not only in the prophets, but the evidence also in his own personal encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He saw and he heard from the apostles and he had talked to those to whom the risen Lord had appeared after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. He had heard their testimonies and he had talked with them. And so he began to to reason with them and explain to them and prove to them. You know, I think it's sometimes it's an indictment on us preachers that sometimes we get so caught up in seminary words that we don't really communicate the truth effectively. Sometimes there are some I have heard that seem like they want to uh, polish off their education more than communicate the truth. And some will leave that audience thinking, I don't understand exactly what he said. You know? Uh, you listen to guys that, of times past like William Buckley and others who uh, love to throw out some words. And you wonder, what was he actually saying? What did that actually mean? Because the simplicity of the matter is to be able to communicate, teachers, hear me, to be able to communicate clearly, distinctively, in a language that is fully understood by the person with whom you're conversing. Exactly what the Word of God says. That's it. I never will forget uh, one old pastor who had well up into his 90s had a red letter day and they were honoring him as the pastor emeritus of the church. And they... Everybody came, and it was his big day, and they were honoring him. And on that particular day, as he uh, feebly walked up the steps to the platform, being assisted on either side by uh, deacons, he took a hold of the altar as firmly as he could to steady himself. And you could have heard a pin drop. People were, gonna, were thinking, this is going to be profound. This is going to be something deep indeed. This is going to be something that, that will be a, uh, an absolute red-letter day. And he simply looked at the audience and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. And he left. And people looked at each other, expecting something profound, and indeed it was profound. But it was communicated so distinctly and so profoundly that it left a, an impression on the audience. And that's what Paul was doing. He had, a, he had an audience. The Bible says some of the Jews, some of the religious Jews were persuaded. Not many. The hardest people, I think, in the world to really get the point across about Jesus as the Messiah are people that are very religious of any religion. I don't care what it is. Even Christianity. Sometimes you, you, you come into areas and I have, I have ministered in areas 
uh, of the world where you have orthodoxy being taught in the churches and it's been there for a long time and it's replaced that evangelistic zeal with some kind of staid religious practice to where the Holy Spirit has almost been uh, ruled out of existence. And sometimes you'll find in, in this particular realm of religion in the synagogues, they were so bent on their religious practice that it was difficult for them to hear exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying about Jesus. One of the things they couldn't get over was a suffering, crucified Messiah. They, it was a problem with the Jews. Our Messiah, no, not Him. He wouldn't be a suffering servant. They hadn't read Isaiah 53. He wouldn't die on a cross. They hadn't read Psalms 22. Not our Savior. He's going to come with a sword. One day He'll come. He will be a military mind. And He will establish the throne of David. And we will get rid of these Roman ruled people. No, not our Jesus. And they just had a difficult time accepting that a Messiah would be willing to die on the cross for their sins. And they couldn't be confronted with the death of a Messiah. So it was hard for them. That's why only a few Jews responded. But then you see God-fearing Greeks, the Bible says, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, a large number. These were men who were, had come into the Jewish faith. They were tired of the Jewish philosophy. They were tired of hearing all about the, any number of gods that existed across the Greek world. They were tired of, of hearing the philosophical exercises uh, among the Greek people. They were just tired. They had pursued everything that the, the Greeks said to pursue and it still left them empty. And there are some of you here today that know exactly what that is like. There are some of you that will be listening live to this. This particular message. You know what it's like. You've, you've done everything that, that our society has said to do to bring you some kind of happiness, some kind of peace. And yet, as you pursue it, you become like Peggy Lee in her old song. Is that all there is? Is that really everything? I'm here. I've been there. I've done that. I got the t-shirt. And yet I'm still empty. There's still this hollow in my heart. There's this emptiness in my soul. And I don't know how to fill it. And yet the Apostle Paul told him how to fill it through Jesus Christ. And so these God-fearing Greeks that were tired of their philosophies and they were searching for truth. The Bible says a large number. We know that Aristarchus and Secundus, you'll, come, you'll hear them in Acts 20, were a couple of the men who likewise came to know the Lord through this particular time with Paul and Silas. You're out there today and you're listening to this message. You have pursued everything that, that people have told you to pursue to be happy and yet you're still empty. You need to know that without Jesus Christ, you'll never find anything to fill that void in your life. Amen. He created you this way. He wired you this way. He knows what He wants. We are created in God's image for one purpose, and that's to, 
That's to love Him and to fellowship with Him. That's why He created us. He wants us to be called His children. For as many as people have received Him, to them He gave the power, the authority, the right to become children of God. God-fearing Greeks. And then look, it said prominent women. Of quite a few prominent women. Wow. What was Paul saying that the women liked? Not only was it that emptiness that they had been pursuing as well. Because now these were well-educated women. They weren't the typical run-of-the-mill uh, ladies that, uh, in that particular day because they were highly educated. They had achieved things on their own or, and with their husbands. But then Paul was not only talking about this Messiah that they had sought out. He was also talking about the fact that you know in Jesus Christ there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no rich, there is no poor, there is no uneducated or educated, there's no male, there's no female, there's no barriers, there's no walls between any of the cultures, between any of the classes. They're all destroyed. They're all torn down at the foot of the cross. Amen. And that really resonated, I believe, with these educated women who were just left empty by Greek philosophy and Greek pursuit. They were educated and instructed in philosophies and found them to be empty. The Bible says there was quite a few. Well... You're here today and maybe that's you. You're looking for something. You wonder, what's going to unite our society? What's going to unite our world? What's going to unite your family? What's going to unite your friends? I'll tell you what it is. It's going to be your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's going to unite you. That's the only thing. He is our only hope. He is not a hope. He's not one in the multiple choice. He is the only answer. He is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. He's the only uniter. Amen. So here we are, folks. You want to see America uh, united again? It will only be at the foot of Jesus. Amen. Period. Then you look at the reaction. Every time you have God making inroads anywhere into your life as an individual, into your, into your personal time, your personal attention, your personal family and friends, who is also going to try to counteract that but Satan? Satan is the enemy. Satan always reacts to a movement of God. He will react to a movement in this church. He'll react to a movement in this community, in this nation, and in this world. He always, always reacts. I want you to see this. Verse 5 and following. Other Jews were jealous. What were they jealous of? They were jealous that they couldn't respond to Paul's logical answers. They were jealous that Paul probably knew the Old Testament better than they did. They were jealous because Paul understood the Messiah and the prophecies predicting his arrival. They were jealous because people were listening to Paul. They were jealous because people were following Paul's admonition. Wow. You know, we have missionaries among us. You know who else has missionaries? Satan. Satan always sends his missionaries when other missionaries are doing their work. 
When you're telling somebody else about Jesus Christ, expect Satan to send his missionaries to counteract it. And what happens? The Jews were jealous. They rounded up some bad characters. I love that. I've looked at any number of translations on this word for bad characters. They're all kind of funny. Uh, These are guys that just were street punks. They didn't do anything. They, They had... They had probably had no job, whatever they, they gained as far as income. It was at somebody else's expense, I'm sure. I'm sure they were thieves and scoundrels and liars and hypocrites and everything else you can imagine. They just kind of hung around the marketplace. The Jews knew where to find them. And so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, can you imagine this, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, where were they? The Lord had sent them on a other, some other kind of mission. Maybe they were at the coffee shop or something. You never know. But the Lord moved them out of Jason's house at the right time. Because when the mob came to Jason's house, they were... They were loaded for bear. They were ready for Paul and Silas. They wanted to find them. They would have strung them up right then. But the Lord intervened. They rushed to their house in search of Paul and Silas. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers who were in Jason's house. You know, Paul and Silas were using that house as a headquarters. And they were, I'm sure, staying there. Some have even speculated maybe Jason was related to Paul. Well, whatever it might be, he was using that as the headquarters of his ministry in Thessalonica. And there were other believers that were there. And they dragged them to the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. I like what the King James Version translates that. He says, that version says, these men have turned the world upside down. You know what? That's a matter of perspective. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the world was turned upside down. And so you and I have the responsibility of turning the world right side up. It's a matter of perspective. When a Christian comes into a community, the world without Christ says, look at there, they're disturbing the world. They're trying to turn it upside down. But a true believer in Christ looks at the the world and society at large and says, no, we're trying to turn it right side up because it's all a matter of perspective. You think that everybody ought to be in lockstep with the world, with the culture. But the reality is God is in control. Jesus gives us the answer. Jesus is the one that gives us the proper perspective. He is the truth. The world is not. He is the way. The world is not. He is the life. The world is not. And so you and I, in our our lifestyle and in our uh, talking with others, are simply trying to turn the world right side up. At least our world. That's all we can do if everybody turned his or her own world right side up through Jesus Christ, then eventually the world would get the message. 
And these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, that other king, what he says is that a king different than Caesar. That's what that word in the Greek means. There is a, another king, a king that is completely different than Caesar because Jesus as king is king of kings and lord of lords and his kingdom is, his kingdom is not of, of armies, it's of witnesses. His king is not of hate or vindictiveness or vengeance, it's a kingdom of love. Satan has these missionaries. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. The Bible says, For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Wow. And so when they heard this, the city officials, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And what was that all about? Uh, Jason, being a property owner in, in Thessalonica, had to post bond, probably guaranteeing that Paul would not return to Thessalonica. Paul mentioned it later on in his letter. He said, he said it this way, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. Wow. Rounded up these bad characters. So here we are. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now, Berea is another uh, distance away. It's 60 miles southwest of Thessalonica. Been to Berea, too. That's a kind of a quaint little area. It is a small little village at the foot of the Olympus, Olympus Mountains. And as Berea is there, it had some... 6,000 people compared to some 200,000 Thessalonica. So they went away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character. What does noble character mean? What in the world is a noble character? Well, a noble character is simply this. Notice here. Then... They were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But I want you to notice something. The Jews were eager and thoughtful, which is more noble. They searched the Scripture daily. And I want you to hear this carefully, folks, both you here in person and those of you that are watching this online. Notice what they did. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. We've got too many illiterate believers out there who just simply listen to one man or one woman 
And whatever they say is true, they take at face value. I don't want you to believe just me. I don't want you to believe a teacher. I don't want you to believe just an individual. I want us to be such biblical students that we're willing to get into that Bible day by day by day. I want you to check it out. I want you to get into the Scriptures. I want you to dig. I want you to be Bible knowledgeable. They looked at it every day. They didn't just take Paul's word for it. They went back to the Old Testament prophets. They went back to the, to the Psalms. They went back to Moses. And they looked to see if what Paul was saying was really true. Too many people out there today are lazy to the extent that they're just not willing to look at the Word of God to see if what has been proclaimed on TV, on the Internet, in, with some other good friend of yours, some pastor somewhere, to make sure that what that particular individual is saying is absolutely true. Search it out, folks. And then, of course, what happened? Verse 13 and following, when the Jews in Thessalonica, 60 miles away, heard that Paul and was preaching the Word of God in Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Satan's missionaries showed up. The believers immediately sent Paul to Timothy, stayed at Berea. Paul brought him with instructions for Silas Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And next week we'll pick him up in Athens. But my question to you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You who have, who have been affiliated with some religious uh, church, some religious movement, some religion, have you found it leaving you empty? Are you still looking for Jesus Christ? Are you still trying to find that, that one thing that will, that will fill that void, that emptiness in your heart, your mind, your life? Have you found it to be adequate or inadequate in your own search? When you're talking to somebody about Jesus, make sure that it's simple. Make sure that it's a dialogue. Make sure that it's, it's readily understandable. Make sure that you get the point across about Jesus Christ because He's alive. We spent our Easter weekend celebrating His resurrection. He's alive. The resurrection is, is the stackpole around which Christianity is constructed. It is the very foundation. If there were no resurrection, your faith would be in vain. My preaching would be in vain. There would be no reason to gather here today. But He lives. I know He lives. He lives today. So do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Some of you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've never followed Him in profession of faith or public profession of faith or baptism by immersion. Today is your opportunity to indicate that's what you need to do. Others of you are looking for a church home, and we've got a phenomenal church family here. If the Lord leads you here, then He's led you here for a purpose. We want you to join us in our quest to be better believers. We're not perfect. Nobody is. You're not perfect either. So if you think you find a perfect church, join it, and you'll make it imperfect. <laughs> so take that. But we have a great church family here. And we love on each other and we love the Lord Jesus Christ and try to put Him first in all that we say and do.
This invitation is for you. You indicate that this is what you want to do. You come. Let's stand as we have a word of prayer. I'll be here at the front afterwards, and uh, I want you to come and let me know about your decision. Our most gracious Father, we praise you for this day. Be with us today, Lord God. May we honor and glorify you above everything else. Lord, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to behold your resurrected glory. For allowing us to walk with you on a daily basis. For allowing us to draw on your strength, your wisdom, your sustenance. Lord Jesus, I praise you for that. Be with us now. May we honor and glorify you above everything. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I'll be here at the front. If anybody will have any questions, I'll talk to you about that.